Sales win rates have plummeted to a mere 17%, and outdated technology and tedious manual processes are to blame. Meanwhile, managers lack the visibility they need to hold their teams accountable. But imagine a world in which these crippling issues are solved automatically. Revenue.io automates the most frustrating parts of sales so reps can focus on what they do best, selling. Completely automate pre-call research, logging conversation data in your CRM, writing post-conversation recap emails, and prioritized outreach. And as reps book more meetings and close more deals, managers gain the real-time insight they need to scale what's working across their entire team. Ready to say goodbye to tedious sales processes and watch your win rate soar? Head over to Revenue.io to learn more. Well, then isn't that one of the disconnects in sales is that people really perhaps have the wrong sense of mission. So when we look at performance issues or more broadly across the sales profession, is that you define sales as a service, which I do as well. Are people aiming at the wrong target? Oh, I think they are. Yeah. You just opened up Pandora's box there with that because, you know, I talk about this in the book. It's not what we sell. It's not even how we sell. It's why we sell to really steal a line from Simon Sinek. It's the outcome we create. And this is what you have to get focused on. Hi, friends. Welcome to the Sales Enablement Podcast. I'm your host, Andy Paul. Now, that was Mark Hunter. And he's known to many as the Sales Hunter, for which you can thank his parents for that fitting last name. Now, Mark is a well-known speaker, corporate trainer, and author of several books on sales, including High Profit Prospecting. And today, he's joining me on this episode of Sales Enablement, which is episode 761, to talk about his new book titled A Mind for Sales. Now, Mark's book is not about whether sellers are born or made. As he suggests, it's not whether you're born with a mind for sales. It's how you develop your own mind for sales. And so today, Mark and I are going to discuss the sales behaviors and mindsets that enable you to become truly customer-centric in your selling, to be more productive in how you use your limited sales time, and most importantly, how to be more effective in your sales interactions with your buyers. But before we get to Mark, I want to let you know that all of us who work to produce this podcast are incredibly grateful for all of you who support us by listening to the show, telling your friends, sharing it on social media, and most importantly, subscribing to the show and giving us your feedback in the form of a rating or a review. So thank you. All right, let's jump into it. Mark, welcome back to the show. Thank you for having me on. It's always great to talk with you. It's always a pleasure to talk with you. And I don't know, you're, you're probably high on the leaderboard in terms of repeat appearances on this show. So um, not quite like Saturday Night Live where we bring out the, the custom-made blazer for you, but uh, we'll come up with something. Can I at least stop by the gift shop and pick up something for free or what? Next time in New York, swing on by. You got it. Okay. All right. So uh, you've got a new book coming out. Yeah. Called A Mind for Sales. So first question has to be is, do you have a mind for sales? Well, wait a minute. Hold on. Hold on. Wait a minute. That's not a question. You're... Yeah. You know what? Here's, I mean, you know what's yes. funny is I never actually come out and answer that very specific question. But I define sales. Sales is helping others see and achieve what they didn't think was possible. Right. You do that in the book. Yes. You know, yeah. And if, and if you're not willing to do that, then you can't even begin to think that you have a mind for sales. Well, but then isn't that yeah. one of the disconnects in, in sales is that people really perhaps have the wrong sense of mission? 
And so when we look at performance issues, or more broadly across the sales profession, is that uh, you, know, you define sales as a service, which I do as well, is uh, are people aiming at the wrong target? Oh, I think they are. Yeah, you, you, you just opened up Pandora's box there with that because it's not what we sell. You know, I talk about this in the book. It's not what we sell. It's not even how we sell. It's why we sell to really steal a line from Simon Sinek. Mm -hmm. And it's the outcome. It's the outcome we create. And this is what you have to get focused on. This is what sales is. Sales is about creating outcomes. You know, when I hear salespeople say, well, I couldn't go to work for that company because that company, you know, doesn't make anything decent. That, da, 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 da. And, and I go, hold it. It's the outcomes. When you focus on the outcomes and how you are helping people, well, we don't sell B2C. We're B2B, business to business. Excuse me, but every business is comprised of people. Mm -hmm. So any way you look at it, we're dealing with people. So really, this comes back to another piece that really, what is sales? It's about creating relationships to understand what your needs are and how best I can help them, how best I can help you. And right now, especially, wow, is that a relevant topic? Yeah, well, recording this, obviously, in the midst of uh, corona crisis. And yeah, I agree with you. I think that, that I was just having this conversation with somebody right before we started recording, which is that they'd asked me what I thought the impact of this was. Uh, one of the impacts of the virus crisis would be the pandemic would be that things are naturally are going to slow down. Right? There's a ripple effect of, you know, because people are affected at so many levels throughout the, the chain, if you will, the economic chain on this and the value chain. But the way you connect with people at this point is through service. That is so key. And the service begins with a relationship. And, and, and if we think right now, I, I think so many people are having sales redefined for them. What does, this, what does the sales process look like? And I always say, I have to be willing to hear each customer's backstory. Each mm -hmm. customer's backstory. Mm -hmm. Everybody's got a backstory. And right now, like you said, we're recording this in the, in the midst of COVID. And everybody's got a personal backstory and a business backstory. And just as we were talking before we began, mm -hmm. we were both sharing our respective backstories. And what does that do? That allows you to connect, the two of you to connect more. And this is where I think trust and authenticity and integrity matter more than ever. I mean, I've always said that those are three pillars of, of, of sales. Mm -hmm. But wow, are they important now? Yeah, and I, so let's, let's go back and deconstruct that a little bit. I mean, so people get really un, uneasy with this term relationship. And, oh, they, yeah. And yeah, I think it's just a matter of semantics for most people. Um, I don't know, I think it was... Aristotle, I think, was one that came up with this, is that you know, there are different types of, of relationships and friendships. And he, he tabled, or termed one, excuse me, a combination of labeled and termed, uh, termed, uh, tabled, he, he labeled it uh, friendship of utility. Isn't that really what you're trying to do with, with your, your buyers? It's, it's, a, it's a functional, utilitarian connection you're making with the person. I mean, there's not a personal and feelings that are involved and so on, but but I think people get so confused, they think they're making friends with, with their, their prospects. And it's not about making friends, it's about making this human connection. I think that definition of Aristotle's is spot on. It is. It's, it, it's truly a utility. You know, I, I am going to create a relationship with you, but I'm not going to invite you over for the holidays. Sorry. Yeah, right. It, it's just not going to happen. And, and, and don't expect me to send you a 
cheesy birthday card. Ain't going to happen. But I'm going to create a relationship with you to understand where you're coming from right now. Yeah. Now, you know, it may materialize down the road, but I ain't, believe me, I ain't banking on it. No, and business isn't based on it. Right. And isn't the same thing true with trust, right? Is, is, yeah, I think, again, I think we go a little too far with the trust thing is people just have to trust you enough. Really, you have to demonstrate your trustworthiness more than anything else, but they're going to trust you enough. And to the point, example you gave before, you're not going to invite somebody over for dinner. I say, yeah, your buyer will trust you enough to make the purchase decision, but they're not going to invite you to come babysit their kids. Right, right. See, yeah. You see, now, for instance, trust. Let's, let's use Target as an example. I can go to a Target store and I can buy things because I trust Target well enough to have the right item. Mm -hmm. I'm not going to go to Target and trust them for open heart surgery. Right. That's not the same level of trust. See, I have to trust you to the degree of the purchase. Mm -hmm. But here's what I found. Trust is a undefinable target yes. between two parties. And that's why. Because your level of trust is going to be different than my level of trust. Right. So I wonder if the conversation's better suited. I've been thinking about this, and I'm actually going to have a conversation with Charlie Green about this coming up, is, is aren't we better, really better suited talking about trustworthiness? Oh, well, and Charlie Green has, has built his career around that. Yeah, right. Charlie's is that, a is that what you're really yeah. trying to do with your, your buyers, you're trying to demonstrate that you're worthy of their trust. Right. Yeah. That's it. That's it. Right. 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 I, like I said, I'm not asking to babysit your kids. Yeah. Right. I, I'm, I'm just asking that I'm, that I'm trust, that there's enough trustworthiness here. Mm -hmm. And, uh, but he, here's what I found. Somebody asked me the other day, said, so what's the definition of trust? And I said, trust is not what you say, it's what you do. Yep. Anybody can say anything, but yeah. it's what you do. That's how people are going to define trust. Well, let's, we can break that down even a little bit too, because if people have read, uh, Stephen M. R. Covey's book, The Speed of Trust. He's got a great definition of trust there. He's got four trust pillars. And first and foremost among those are motivations. Are your motivations transparent to your buyer? And I think this, and Adam Grant talks about this in his book, Give and Take, is that it's okay to, to be a giver with an agenda, right? <laughs> as long as you're transparent about it, right? You're up front. Right, right. That's fine. That's Mr. Fine. Prospect, we're here to help you. And if I'm right. su successful in helping you, I benefit as well. Right. That's okay. Right. You're up front. You're being transparent. Right. Unfortunately, too often in sales, though, what happens is we're here to serve you. We're here to serve you. We're here to serve you. It's the last day of the month. Hey, can we get your order? We'll give you a 10% discount. What are we going to do to get your – oh. Uh, And oh, suddenly, man. you've submarined the whole trust issue. Suddenly, trust is now based purely on economics. Right. It doesn't mean they won't do business with you, but from that right. point forward, your conversation is always about the next discount. Right. Right. That's where we totally lose it right there. Yeah. And and I – and. And boy, do we see that far too often. I mean, wh why is it that people don't trust car dealers? Because you know that you go in at the end of the month, you're going to get a much better deal than you would at the beginning of the month. So why do, why do we continue to perpetuate this, this, this behavior? Because we know we're going to get a better deal at the end of the month than the beginning of the month. We're willing to play the game. Well, I mean, it's the same, it's the same thing with department stores. But change the compensation structure for sellers that, hey, you get... Paid higher commission rate for orders that close in the first week of the month versus those that close in the last week of the month. But at the end of the day, the dealership is driven by the manufacturer wanting to hit their monthly numbers. Right. I'm talking about a B2B company, right? If you're right, a, yeah. if I you're mean, a sales so again, company, I mean, they're, they're, you've got control yeah. over it. Yeah. Change your compensation structure. I'm sorry. Too many conversations today. Um, 
you know, you can, you can, you can affect that. But you see all these behaviors that come up, and I was asking like this guy once, uh, you know, hey, have you can you determine the ROI on a discount that you give to a buyer at the last week of the month? If you're going to get the order on Friday as opposed to waiting till the next Monday, even though it's a new month, is the ROI worth it? And it's like they've never thought about it. No, all they've thought about it is does it put more commission in their pocket right now? Yeah. Well, it really right. starts with the managers. The managers are the ones that encourage that behavior. Oh, oh, oh! I, I, I had a customer. I had a customer share with me one time. Uh, this was when I was in the consumer packaged goods industry, and um, she made the comment. And she was a buyer for a major national for a major national retailer, mm-hmm. and she said, "I know when every one of my vendors, when they're end of the quarter and end of the year is, and what I do is I stop buying." X number of weeks ahead of time. Yep. Because I know the deal is going to get better. Yeah. And what I'll do is I won't buy anything until I finally hear from like the VP of sales. Because when I finally get a call from the VP of sales on the last day of the quarter, you know, or, you know, whatever, I know I've got the best deal. (laughs) I mean, give me a break. Give me, you know, and, and I'm sure the VP of sales thinks he's like, oh, he or she is so cool because, wow, look at this. I just closed this big deal. No. You've trained your customers to behave that way. Absolutely. All right. Well, let's get back to your book. Because there's okay. Let's get parts, back to the there's book. There's some parts of the book that that I thought were very interesting. I wanted to get to, and and one of the first ones, and we sort of just talked about it. But I'm it curious whether you you wrote that that um, early in your sales career you had these experiences. You you say by the third time around, I began to see sales as being about the customer, and quickly the results followed. The more I focused on the customer the more success I had. So what triggered that? Well, what triggered it was, I mean, A, I got fired from my first two sales jobs because what what happened was I was closing sales and creating expectations with customers that we couldn't deliver on. Now, there are a lot of other issues as to why I got fired, but, but yeah, I got fired. The third job I was with, and it was a meeting I had with my boss's boss. My, My boss's boss wanted to work with me and he pulled me aside. And he really pushed me hard because, in fact, I thought I was go- I thought I was going to get fired. Mm-hmm. I remember this. I remember this day to the T. I can tell you exactly what I was wearing. Um, if I describe well, it, well, dark dark suit, white shirt. No, 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 no. It was tie. it was it was a brown <laughs> plaid polyester suit. Well, I would have fired you too. Thank you, thank you. But hey, it was the eighties, man. It was the eighties. Okay. okay. Anyway, anyway. Okay. So anyway. Um, and he challenged me. He said, he said, do you really think you're making a difference with your customers? And it was, I mean, he really mm-hmm. pushed down hard on me. Great question. He said, I don't think you really understand why you're selling. And that simple 15-minute conversation turned my whole career around. I mean, it was, it was, it was one of those, because I'm sitting there thinking the whole time I'm getting fired. Mm-hmm. And and I'm I'm like, I'm I'm toast. And all he was doing was he was saying, because I mean, he knew I could, he knew I could sell, but he had to, and, and that's when the light really began to go on. That's the why you're selling. That's the why. That's the why. That's the why. Yeah. So this, this customer centricity, we'll call it, is certainly something books have been written about it and, you know, customer centric selling, solutions selling, all these. You know, why are we having such a hard time still? Sort of inculcating this, this I don't know, is it a behavior or mindset into, into sellers? 
I think I think it's a mindset that drives behavior. Here's the whole thing. We know we can help you, and we're on a mission to try to close this deal as rapidly as possible. And so we forget the whole reasons as to why you're buying. We forget the whole reasons. We we fail to understand and we fail to create the value. One of the things that drives me nuts is that the majority of of no's that we hear are really no's because the customer decides to make no decision. Mm-hmm. Right? The customer just sure. makes no decision. What does that mean? That's a real indictment on us because we haven't created in sales. We haven't created enough value mm-hmm. for you to say yes. Because you know what? We were too busy talking product and we didn't really understand why. Why do you need this? Why does this mean so much to you? Let me give you a very quick example. And it comes out of kind of in the COVID mm-hmm. environment. Company sells some manufacturing equipment that will help you reduce the number of employees you need. It's, it's labor saver. Great, great. More efficient, everything. Great, great. Okay. That's a great outcome. But right now, it takes on a different outcome because, wait a minute, wait a minute. If this allows me to have my employees spaced out better, if this allows me to have fewer employees, guess what? There's less likelihood of me having to deal with COVID mm-hmm. on my production line. Mm-hmm. So really, it allows me to keep the production line. See, so the, the, the tool is the same, but the outcome and the benefit now has an exponential value. Because now I'm thinking, and this came up in a conversation I was having yesterday with a CEO of a manufacturing firm right. that's been deemed critical. But he says, I have 15 people on one particular line. And I'm racing to try to find a way to only have five or six on that line. Mm-hmm. Because I can't afford to have one of them get it because then I got to self-quarantine the 14 others. Right. And see, so th- this whole thing is, if we listen to the customer, they will tell us, but we fail, we fail to take the time to listen to the customer. Well, I think this gets back to not teaching sellers what the real mission is. Bingo. Right. And, and so I'll phrase it a different way. So um, there's been a lot of work done on decision making. And, and as one guy has written extensively about it, says, look, decisions basically happen in two steps. First step is we de- we determine we define what our options are for solving whatever problem we're trying to solve, right? The second phase is we decide who we're going to solve it with. And I think what happens is too often sellers just focused on the who they're going to solve it with part and not on how influencing the buyer's decisions and choices about how they need to solve it. And as long as we're focused on competing on the product and the price, you know, just trying to be the vendor as opposed to trying to be what I call the choice, right? I'm trying to be the choice. You've got multiple choices about how to solve this problem. I want to influence how you make that choice and be the choice. I think that I think that's so spot on because we've been taught focus on the ICP, you know, the ideal customer profile. Yeah, a lot of books have been written on that. And so we think once we have this perfect per- once we have this perfect person, they fit this profile, then they're ready to buy. And we fail to realize in there, no, they just fit the profile of somebody who is likely to buy. Mm-hmm. It doesn't necessarily mean they align up with the outcome of why they will buy. And that's a big difference. Well, yeah. And, and we have to be willing to sit there and listen. And 
And there's, there's, there's a piece in the book where I sit there and, and I talk about it in my other book, High Profit uh, uh, Prospecting. Mm-hmm. And that is the whole deal of, of asking questions. And what I always say is when I've reached a level of confidence with you and you've reached a level of confidence with me, I'll know that when I can ask you a question that you can't answer and I can't answer. But what does that do? Boy, that creates a real deep conversation. Mm-hmm. That's cool. Mm-hmm. That's neat. Mm-hmm. That's where I really get to what the where where the outcomes are. I agree, hundred percent. And it's it's again, it's, it's it's I think an artifact of how we sell these days that we say, look, discovery's in this box. We do discovery in this box, and then we stop asking questions. And instead, what you sort of think about is that on every interaction with a buyer. I'm trying to do four things. I'm trying to deepen the connection, deepen my discovery, deepen my understanding, and deepen the value that I give them. I love it. And if you do that, then you're saying, look, every time, to your point, we haven't asked enough questions to get to the point where we neither of us knows the answer. But you got to keep asking questions to get that. It doesn't all happen just in one call, and then you check the box and say, we move on. I think that, I think that, that is so spot on, but see... What it comes back to, because we've been so ingrained the process, the process, the process, the process, and the process is driven by the by the by our sales stack. You know the tools that we have in the sales stack, and we forget that the most important tool we have is our mind. That's a pretty darn good tool. Yeah, it really is good if we use it occasionally. You know, Steve Steve Jobs had a great line. You know, why is it that we hire really brilliant people that are smarter than us, and then we tell them what to do? <laughs> right? Yeah, I hadn't heard that in a long time, but that's that's a great a great. Yeah, sign. I mean, but that's really, but that's endemic to sales, right? It's well, it's not just endemic to sales. I Why think it's endemic I, to business and everything. Sure, in business, but we're talking about sales here, right? We, this yeah. is what we do. I was actually just having this conversation on another show before you and I started talking today. It's like everything's so compliance oriented these days, right? We got this process, and we yeah, we have our tech stack, and and there's nothing wrong with the technology. I mean, I, I use it, but it's like. It doesn't control how I sell, right? It supports how I use it in a way it supports how I sell. Um, but you know, for so many of our young reps, you know, they reach out to me, they listen to the show. It's like frustrated because they feel like they're better than they're performing, but they're being forced to perform within a box. Right, right, right. And 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 following compliance in your sales stack is not going to help you win the president's award. And it gets you to the trip to Hawaii. It's achieving the results. Yeah. Well, because the top sellers break the right. rules. And, and I, I find so many people, what they do is they just, they just, I know several salespeople right now that are absolutely struggling in what they do because they're trying to follow the process step by step by step by step. And they wonder why they're not successful. Well, because the the process was driven as if everything is a blanket statement. If I say this, they say this, they say mm-hmm. this. Those are blanket mm-hmm. statements. Now, those will really work if you're selling blankets. I don't know about you. I don't know about me, but I've never sold blankets. Mm-hmm. So I can't deal with blanket statements. But this is what happens. We create this blanket process. And we over-systematize the process. I mean, I will never forget at a sales at a Dreamforce event a number of years ago where somebody had created an, an app that when you get ready for the presentation, 
it will automatically tell you when to call for Uber. <laughs> okay, excuse me. Do I really need an app for that? But I mean, think about this. I mean, it, 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 it's over. I want to have a conversation with you. I want to have a conversation with you. I'll, and, and that conversation is not going to be driven by a, by a sales stack, tech stack, whatever you want to call it. It's a conversation. Because when I have a conversation with you, because this is the whole thing. A lot of people say, well, well, B2B decisions are not emotional. Garbage, they are. Yeah. <laughs> they're, emo they're emotional supported that's by fact. Been, yeah, that's been established beyond a doubt. We shouldn't even be having that argument anymore, yeah. I know we shouldn't, but we do. It, it, it just, it, it, it's, oh no, it's just, it's just, here's the criteria. And oh man, I don't, even government contracts, you know, oh, it's low cost providers, low cost provider. There is still so much emotion written into how the contract was even written to begin with. Mm -hmm. What's the RFP look like? Sure. So let's not kid ourselves. The individual person, I think, in today's environment, plays an even more important role than ever on the buying side. On the buying side, oh, absolutely. Well, but also, but also on the sell, also on the selling side too. Well, sure. Yeah, I'm yeah. going to use a, you know, I'm going to use artificial intelligence. I'm going to use every tool I can to help me. But at the end of the day, those tools are there to help me. I'm not there to help them. Right. I think the buyers think the same thing. I mean, there's certainly examples of of artificial intelligence-driven technology that, on the side of the buyers or the buyers, when it comes to the ultimate decision, say, "Nah, I want to talk to a person." Right, right, and I think that's right. I mean, human instinct. You know, and, that's not going to go away anytime soon. Yeah, and and artificial intelligence. Let's not. It's been around. I mean, demand forecasting, demand forecasting models. I remember those thirty years ago. Sure. You know, it, they've been around for years, and that's basically artificial intelligence. I mean, so well, it's, don't go. It's know, gotten way people, more sophisticated in thirty years. Right, but, right, right. Yeah. It's right. It's it's gotten way more sophisticated. But I mean, these tools have been. You know. They just keep getting better and better. And that, what does that mean? We have to be continually upping our game as individuals. Yeah, as humans. As humans, right. Yeah, I really think that's the, the key. Is I think that, and uh, Jeffrey Colvin wrote about this in his book, uh, Humans Are Underrated, is that you know, one of the biggest impacts, based on the research he did and writes about in the book, is of this technological age we're in, the AI-driven age we're in, is that we have to become, use the term, more intensively human. And oh, and I think that's really the case, right? That's when you're going to stand apart. I mean, you could have you know a guided buying system, a guided selling system that's driven by AI, but at some point, the person who makes the decision, if it's not a machine making a decision on the other end, if it's a person making the buy decision, they've got something at stake in that decision. Mm -hmm. And as mm -hmm. long as they have something at stake, then I believe, certainly for the foreseeable future, they're going to talk to a person about that. Right. And, and, and let's not kid ourselves. In a lot of industries, it is machine talking to machine to, to place the order to buy, to, to do all that. Yeah, supply chain. Yeah. Fine, fine. That's routine order, all this sort of stuff. But there's still humans behind that. Oh, yeah. At some level, so still somebody's humans. making the decision what, what parts get put on the reel, they get put into the assembly. You got line. it. Yeah. You got yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I've got a question, sir. Yeah, you, you write a book about seven metrics that, that matter in the book. And so if... If you have one metric in your mind that you could use that you think that is the best indication of individual sales performance, what do you think that is? Well, that's that's very that boy you that's a loaded question. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Here's the metric that I think matters the most. What is the percentage of my business that's coming from repeat sales? Now, 
here's uh, let me let me run down let me run down this road. The only good sale is one that leads to the next sale. Okay. This is what got me into trouble early on my sales career. I wasn't creating repeat sales mm -hmm. because I wasn't creating loyal customers. What makes Apple successful? Because they've created an, an ecosystem that you get sucked in and you are yep. there for it. So a metric that I look to is, is as a salesperson, is what I'm selling, are customers coming back and referring me to other people? Are they engaged with me? Am I creating additional revenue off of you mm -hmm. long-term? That's a key metric. Now, it's a long-term metric, mm -hmm. but that is a very valuable metric as to a salesperson's performance. I don't care what the industry is that you're in. It's going to come into play. So what about a scenario, though? Just challenge that for a second. And not challenge, but you know, another spin on it is, you know, take SaaS business, right? Inside sales-driven, highly specialized sales yep. role. Account executive closes the order, hands it off to customer success. So for, right. for that account exec, then what's the metric you'd look at? Well, the metric is going to be the, the metric is going to be is is have I delivered to sales success a client, a customer whose expectations are going to be met, or have I delivered them a client that is going to argue for this, 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 and that because I oversold the expectations. Okay. So what I look for is what is the speed of the implementation? What is the speed of the execution? We have all seen salespeople who are notorious at closing by delivering expectations that sales success can't deliver on. Mm -hmm. And what does that do? That creates customer churn. Yep. That is a huge, huge piece. So that is one metric. Another metric that I look for is what is, what is the sales that I get now and what is the upsell potential down the road? Now, there's two ways to look at this because, again, this comes back to AE compensation, especially in a SaaS world. Many times what happens is the AE gets compensated on that initial order. Mm -hmm. Okay, But the problem is, so what does that do? That automatically says the AE doesn't want to close the order until we get to maximum. And I think now I'm going down a side path here. Sure. But this, cre this creates a problem. This creates a problem because then what happens is the AE will not try to close the deal until he gets 100 seats or 200 seats. When really what he should be doing is saying, hey, let me get 10 seats, prove this, and then we'll, we'll expand out. You know, you, you, you've you been a champion. You were a champion very early on of selling fast. Mm -hmm. You know, speed, speed, mm -hmm. speed sells. And very, very critical. But see, the compensation models in a lot of SaaS companies works against that, which is, which is really wrong, I think. I just want to get you in and then I'll scale you up. I will scale you up from there. I'm sorry. I went. I well, went no, down no, but that, it does raise that. no. It does raise a question though, and which is, you know, we can talk about it or not. Which is, yeah. I mean, we've we've have a certain structure in a lot of these companies, inside sales companies, with you know the specialized sales roles, and yeah, I think an argument can be made that you should be keeping uh, the account execs involved longer. Um, but yeah, let's let me. I have another question I want to ask you, though, instead of that one. So when you make a fair yeah. time, we'll come back to that one. Because it triggered a thought, and I've had this thought reading your book about the metrics of matter and so on, is is, um, is it time to get rid of quota as a measure of performance? Oh, you're not going to. You're never going to. Why? Because we are a publicly traded world that we live in, and you have quarterly earnings. So I think you're going to have a hard time getting rid of quota. I'll, I'll give you an example. 
I was working with a company about a year ago and they did not have quotas. In fact, they did not pay commission. Mm -hmm. Everybody had a base pay. Mm -hmm. Let me tell you something. They changed things around. They put in place quota and a bonus incentive commission. Sales went through the roof. Hmm. Very interesting. What happened? Well, now salespeople could see why they were working, what they were working for. And let's not kid ourselves. I do believe in the scoreboard. And I talk about it in the book in terms of the scoreboard. Should you unplug the scoreboard? Because the scoreboard creates a lot of wonky, wonky things. And I get it. Creates distortions. How many times do we sit there and make sales calls just for sake? Well, my boss wants me to make umpteen sales calls sure, today. I guess sure, I do sure. it. Wrong. I could care less. Uh, especially if you have a, a manager who's a spreadsheet jockey or the dashboard junkie. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I call him dashboard Dan, who just looks at the dashboard and says, this, this, is, this is where the team sucks. So there's some arguments there to unplug the scoreboard. And I do. And I talk about unplugging the scoreboard. But I don't believe that you can take away quotas initial completely. Here's what I find. Mm-hmm. Top performing people. And again, I talk about it in the book. Top performing people don't use the quota as their number. They set something even higher. And if I look at top performing people, they always set their own metrics. They always set their own measurements. And that's why they're top performers. And, and that goal, that objective, their, my number for the quarter is purely, I'm just going to be passing through that because my goal is to get even farther. See? So the whole thing is, what are the goals that I'm setting as an individual and how am I allocating my time to achieve them? Yeah. Well, I mean, you didn't really, <laughs> I'm not saying that we shouldn't have a target. I just don't think quota is the right target. Oh, I, no, I, I totally agree. I mean, I'm, I, I, I would love to see us not have quotas. Well, I think that, I think having a, a set of target, I mean, there's, and I've, you know, people may be sick of me talking about this. Yeah. You know, there's Goodhart's law, which says that when a, a measure becomes a target, it loses all value as a measure. So when we take something we think is a measure, like performance, quota performance, and make it a target, what happens is people optimize their processes to achieve that end result and artificially perform at lower levels. Whereas if we took something like what I advocate, which is how many dollars of revenue do you generate per hour of selling time? Now, there's something that, yeah, it's a measure. And right. We, right. we could incent people based on that measure to become right. more effective yeah. in their selling. Yeah. And I bet you, on, on balance, teams would perform at much higher levels across the board if they had that type of, of measure and accountability than quota. So I'm, I'm a big advocate. Time to, time, time to deep six quotas. Uh, but probably the advocate that would have, no, I don't even think Jack Welch would have been in favor. You know, again, I mean, we are so ingrained in the quarterly earnings and so forth. But I know, I, I know myself. Well, management, what, what man, the, that's because management's lazy. That's why we keep well, quota. Management is lazy. I'm that's, not, I'm not, I mean, believe me, there, there were, I mean, I would hit quota at the end of week 11 and it was amazing how I shut down. I could easily drive past it. I could have easily driven past. Yeah, but I'm saying management's lazy because uh, the I, reasons I'm, you talked about is you know we've got these systems in place, and yet you know at the execution level, at the individual contributor level, certainly in inside sales, we've adopted these models over the last 10, 15 years. Highly specialized sales roles, which which I'm a big advocate for. I think it makes a ton of sense. 
And we've continued to evolve those. And we look at the way we structure management and the way the management's set up, and it hasn't fundamentally changed in the last 100 years. Oh, I totally so, agree. So we're using these, <laughs> why are we using this, this measure quota that came up with 100 years ago when we've completely transformed the way we're executing sales on the other end? It just makes no sense. And, and so, again, I, I think it's just pure laziness. This is the way it's been. Well, we're changing how we're executing sales. Why don't we change how we actually manage and measure what constitutes performance? Should I get off my soapbox now? I'll let you stand <laughs> up in a publicly traded company, Fortune 500 company, and have that discussion with the CEO and, and the board of directors. <laughs> well, there are companies that are doing that, though, that aren't. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm, yes. The, that are publicly traded. Yeah. Yeah. But it's, it's, it's still an, not a, it's more of an outlier behavior. Oh, sure. I think over, over time it will become more adopted. Well, it's, if they get serious about performance, that's the thing is they're not really serious about performance. I mean, most management teams are just serious about the status quo. They are. That's what it comes down to. Bingo. So if you really gave a crap about enhancing performance of your sales team, yeah, you'd tear up your playbook as far as how you manage it and start from scratch. Yeah. But you didn't write about that. But that was that's a topic that. Uh, but you know what? That would be that would be a cool next book. See, there you go. You you've given me an idea for the next book. Okay, good, good. And I'll I'll even let you write the foreword for it. How's that sound? I'll, I'll, better yet, I'll I'll co-write it with you. There you go. Okay. Perfect. All right. I'm putting it in my calendar. So the other thing that was interesting, not the only other thing you talked about. There's a lot of interesting things in the book. People should definitely pick it up and read it. Is um, you talked about the best sales are the ones where the need to negotiate never enters the conversation. And I agree. I'm not sure we, you and I arrive at that point via the same route, but I agree. So how do you avoid it? Well, this is where I say sell first and negotiate second, because if I've done such a great job of selling, and, 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 and selling is the, is, is the dialogue. That's the discussion. I understand your needs. So I understand your needs, your outcomes so well. And you know the critical need as to why you need to work with me, that there's no need to negotiate. It, 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 just, it just becomes such a no-brainer because there's also a level of trust that exists, trust for that transaction. Like I said, not trust to take to babysit your kids, as we mm. on. but all of those comfort pieces are there that you say, yeah, this just make this just makes sense. Um, yesterday, I bought a major software package for my company. Mm -hmm. And um, I might have been able to negotiate a deal in light of the economy and everything. But it was spot on. It was right on. We had developed such a level of trust. It was there. Fine. Done. Boom. Right. Done. No arguments. Yeah. And I think there's, and I think when you talk about things more complex, because I, I, I said, I agree at the same point. I think sales should never be negotiating because first of all, they're horrible negotiators. Oh, yeah. <laughs> is that when you're doing something a little more complex, if you're in there really helping the customer define what it is they need to do to solve the problem, is if you've, reached agreement on what this solution looks like and i draw the analogy it's like a, a jenga tire tower that you built right is that if you want to move this block it's like well yeah you can you can do that i mean yeah you don't want you know this level of service fine you can take that out but that's going to affect this other part mm -hmm. and so it becomes this finely constructed integral tower if you will that if you just remove one piece the whole thing's going to collapse yeah and i found that that's the way you sell that obviates the need for negotiation. Yeah. I love it. All right. So you, I know you need to run. Um, 
So tell people where they can find the book. Well, you can find the book on Amazon, Barnes and Noble, Books a Million, anywhere books are sold. Oh, of course, it's for video video viewers. He's holding it up. A mind for, for sales. the video viewers. I'm holding it up. A mind for sales. And yeah, it's 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 out in Kindle, Audible, hard copy. And as a gentleman in the UK told me, he said, "Did you just write this book? Because right now this book is so appropriate for the period we are in. Because it really is the message applies." to right now, 2020. All right. Check it out, people. Mark, thank you. And we'll make sure to have you back again before too long. And I should mention my website, thesaleshunter.com, because that's where I'm at. The world's best sales name. Hey, you know what? And it's trademark, so don't steal it, okay? There you go. Oh, shoot. I have to change my new website. Okay. I know. (laughs) Mark, talk to you soon. Great selling. Okay, folks. Thanks for listening. We're so grateful for your support of the show. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to this podcast, Sales Enablement with Andy Paul, on iTunes or wherever you listen, and leave us a five-star rating. You can do that all on your phone in less than a minute as soon as this podcast is over. So thank you so much, and until next time, I'm your host, Andy Paul. Good selling, everyone. Hey, sales strategists. At Revenue.io, we're not just imagining the future of sales. We're building it. We offer the world's most complete platform for revenue teams, and we're featured in the most recent Forrester Waves for both sales engagement and conversation intelligence. With Revenue.io, you can slash call prep time to seconds, guide your reps in real time to have more successful conversations, and after calls, we generate ready-to-send recap emails so sellers can keep deals soaring toward the finish line at light speed. See the future of sales now at Revenue.io.